Welcome to another episode of Hitting Paydirt by Impact Sports. This is episode number 58, and I'm Alex Beaudry. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I wanted to do a NIL episode. Um, Brian and I talked a little bit about it on the Monday episode, and we talked about some specific deals and how it's being used for recruiting and and everything else, but with it being so much in the news right now, with the NCAA issuing new guidance this week, um, with commissioners of conferences making statements and subcommittees of the NCAA coming out and talking about enforcement, and it's just it's all over the news. I really wanted to, mainly for my own benefit, but for all of you listening as well, do a deep dive not only into NIL, but into the NCAA and specifically the NCAA with regards to antitrust law, which is what is basically being this discussion around name, image, and likeness is being centered around. (laughs) So I thought now would be a good time to slow down. Monday's episode was a little choppy. We were kind of all over the place. So let's pause look at how we got to this point and what this means moving forward for schools, for boosters and collectives, and for the NCAA. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. The year was 1984. And in 1984, there was a Supreme Court case the NCAA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma. Uh, For all you law nerds out there, 468 U.S. 85, 1984. And that court case, specifically, while it was an antitrust case, (coughs) excuse me, that court case was specifically around schools' ability and conferences' abilities to go out and procure television deals. And if you're interested in the merits of the case, you can go back and read the court's opinion. It's not really important here. What is important here out of this case was a little section, and I had to dust off my law textbooks. I had to dig them out of the office, (laughs) blow the dust off of them. Um, But there's a paragraph in that decision. It's in section two of the court's decision. And I'm going to read it verbatim here. Because while it had really no bearing on the merits of the Board of Regents case, the NCAA used it for decades to limit compensation to athletes and to limit benefits to athletes and to really control the athletes while they were involved in an NCAA institution. So here is what the court said. And again, this is verbatim, at least from my law textbook. The identification of this quote-unquote product with an academic tradition differentiates college football from and makes it more popular than professional sports to which it might otherwise be comparable, such as, for example, minor league baseball. In order to preserve the character and quality of the product, athletes must not be paid, 
must be required to attend class and the like. And the integrity of the product cannot be preserved except by mutual agreement. If an institution adopted such restrictions unilaterally, its effectiveness as a competitor on the playing field might soon be destroyed. Thus, the NCAA plays a vital role in enabling college football to preserve its character and as a result enables a product to be marketed which might otherwise be unavailable. In performing this role, its actions widen consumer choice, not only the choices available to sports fans, but also to those athletes, and hence can be viewed as pro-competitive. So again, I'm not sure that this really had much to do with the merits of the Board of Regents case. However, it did have a huge impact because the NCAA could point to this language in this decision any time an antitrust uh, case was brought forward regarding athletes' rights to say, look, the Supreme Court here said that amateurism and the traditions of college football are paramount to our product. Therefore, we can limit, we can restrict different aspects of trade, you know, not allowing our athletes to be paid or to pursue marketing deals because it's not a violation of antitrust law because it's paramount to our product. And if we were to change those components of our product, again, paying our athletes, it would hurt our consumer and it would hurt and it would hurt our end product. So <clears throat> this was back in 1984 and this language was used for decades to allow the NCAA to, to seriously control athlete empowerment and athletes' rights and athletes' access to financial opportunities. So that was, again, 1984. Fast forward to the Alston case, which was decided last June, or the opinion came out last June. In that case, the issue was not whether or not a player could engage in name, image, and likeness. It was not whether a player could earn financial opportunities from the institution or otherwise. It was very narrow in regards to what they called academic benefits. So how much money could they get for tutoring services and study abroad opportunities and things that were much more related to the academic nature of the quote-unquote student-athlete. And I know some people hate that term, but we'll use it here since people talk about it. So it, it had nothing really to do with on-field activities or being paid because of your status as a football or basketball player or volleyball player, or whatever it might be. It was very narrow in their restraints. But again, the NCAA in Alston argued that amateurism and the idea of restricting trade was necessary back to the Board of Regents case because it's at the sole component of college athletics. Our product is unique and our product is popular because of amateurism, because our athletes do not are not compensated. Therefore, we can control the level of benefits that are afforded to them. In the majority opinion, and the NCAA lost 9-0, but in the majority opinion, the phrase that stood out to me, the language from the court said, a party cannot relabel a restraint 
as a product feature and declare it free from antitrust scrutiny. So here, the court, again, 9 nothing, stated that this argument that the NCAA has had since 1984, that amateurism is at the core of its product, and therefore it can restraint trade in order to preserve amateurism, is no longer a valid argument. And they lost on that argument 9-0. Furthermore, Justice Kavanaugh took it one step further in his concurring opinion, stating that decades-old comments from the Board of Regents case is not case law. And the other main thing that he said, and he had a fantastic concurring opinion, but the NCA is not exempt from antitrust law. So <clears throat> that is the NCA's relationship to antitrust law in a very high-level six-minute overview. Those two cases going back to Board of Regents, which kind of set the table for 30 years of what the NCAA has been able to do and how quickly that has gone away since the Alston case. So how does this all bake into name, image, and likeness? Around 2019, several states started to implement name, image, and likeness laws where athletes would be able to receive compensation, endorsement deals, sponsorships, etc., for their own name, image, and likeness. There were a handful of states. I believe California was the first one to pass it, although their law was several years in the future from when it was going to take effect. Florida shortly followed, and then states all across the South were scrambling to catch up because they didn't want to be left behind. So these states, and again, I think there were like 15 of them, were set to have new name, image, and likeness laws July 1st, 2021. Well, the Alston case, the opinion was released in June. And the NCAA had been working for two years up to that point on what they were calling quote-unquote guardrails along name, image, and likeness. The Alston case comes out, they lose 9 nothing. It's very clear that the NCAA wanted some sort of antitrust exemption based on their status as an amateur sports league or sports organization or however they'd classify themselves. And the, case, and the court struck that down unanimously, 9 nothing. they were not going to receive an antitrust exemption in any sort of way. So the NCAA, with three weeks to go until July 1st, issued a two-page interim policy and left it basically to the schools and the states to figure it out. So since July 1st, we're now 10 months into it, almost 11 months, <clears throat> the States have kind of been going back and forth. Schools have been doing their best. If a state or a school does not have an NIL law, they follow the NCAA policy. If they do have a state law, obviously state law would prevail, but they also must follow the NCAA policy. Up until this point, again, 10, 11 months into it, the NCAA has done nothing to enforce its policy. Its policy has always been that in name, image, and likeness, NIL cannot be used to recruit a player and it is not pay for play. So no inducements and it cannot be pay for play. And I would say for the first couple months, that was followed. You know, you saw the headlines, current college athletes were getting huge deals. You had the Cavender twins, you had the gymnast from LSU, you had 
big time football and basketball players getting million dollar deals. And it was all current athletes taking advantage of the new NIL landscape. Then it shifted to, you know, we were starting to see how there could be some group licensing deals, you know, um, multiple players engaged with one product and they were all getting a share of it. And that happened for a hot minute. And then you started to see boosters and collectives push the envelope in terms of offering recruits to where now that is where all the attention has been, at least for the last couple of months. Look at this high school athlete who's being recruited to this school and they're getting this amount of money and some boosters are doing it creatively. Others aren't even trying to hide it. Um, As I mentioned on the podcast on Monday, there was an agent for a University of Miami basketball player Um, Isaiah Wong, I believe his name is, who said if he doesn't get more NIL money, he's transferring. Those types of things, at least according to the NCAA interim policy, would not be allowed. So we're now 10, 11 months into this. The NCAA hasn't lifted a finger. And now it's starting to come to a head. This past week, you've had the Big Ten, the Big 12, and the Pac-12 all had spring meetings, their their conferences, and all of them, all three of them, have agreed to begin cracking down on boosters using NIL to land recruits. Also this week, you had the NCAA issue a reinforcement of its name, image, and likeness policy. And the guidelines that were released really had no new information, but it did clarify a few things, and it did set the stage for the NCAA to begin enforcing its rules. So first thing that it talked about, third parties defined as boosters. The big thing here is that collectives will be, are are determined to be boosters. What that means, boosters and now collectives may not communicate with a prospective student athlete, a, pros, a prospect, easy for me to say, a prospective student athlete's family or others affiliated with the athlete for recruiting purposes um, or to encourage the athlete to attend a certain university. Um, furthermore, institutional coaches and staff may not organize or arrange a meeting between a booster slash NIL entity and a student athlete. Um, Coaches cannot communicate directly or indirectly with a student athlete on behalf of a booster. And NIL agreements must be based on an independent case-by-case analysis of the value that each athlete brings to an NIL agreement as opposed to providing compensation or incentives for enrollment enrollment decisions or achievement or membership on a team. So essentially, that last point, your NIL deal must be tied to your name, image, and likeness. It cannot be tied to your participation or your on-field achievements or your enrollment at a specific school. So that's what they tackled with boosters and collectives. They also offered some guidance to current student-athletes. It's an NIL agreement between a student-athlete and a booster entity may not be guaranteed or promise contingent on initial or continuing enrollment at a particular institution. So again, what that agent did in Miami, like, hey, I want a new NIL deal, or I'm transferring, that would be a no-no for the athlete. Um, And again, the 
agreement must be based on your name, image, and likeness and not tied to your um, status at school or your achievements, etc. Um, for NCAA Division I institutions, athletics departments are prohibited from representing a student-athlete or, an, or a prospective student-athlete in marketing their ability or reputation. A la the school cannot represent an athlete on behalf of them for an NIL deal. Um, kind of goes on. Boosters may not engage in recruiting activities <clears throat> on behalf of a school. Um, and it goes on to define recruiting. And then boosters may not be involved in making arrangements for or giving or offering to give any financial aid or other benefits to a prospective student-athlete. Receipt of a benefit is not by a student-athlete is not a violation if the same benefit is generally given to the institution's prospective students. Athletics participation for pay and payment based on performance or given on an incentive basis are prohibited, and institutions are held responsible for any impermissible recruiting activities engaged in by a representative of athletics. So <clears throat> that was a lot. I would encourage you to go read it if you're interested in this stuff. But the NCAA come out and further clarified their stance on NIL. Really not much has changed over the last 10 months, but <clears throat> you know, reiterating their policies. So a couple of things on this news, on this new, or not really new, but the the new guidelines that came out. First is something that I've been thinking about, which is important because I think it's easy to classify the NCAA as a big bad third party. They're actually not. So the NCAA is just a membership of schools that come together to form, you know, this organization. So when we scrutinize the NCAA, we're really scrutinizing the individual membership. It's important to note the NCAA is doing this because schools want this to be done. And they've went so far to say it without saying it. There was a quote in The Athletic. Uh, John Duncan, vice president of enforcement, according to sources, um, said the NCAA was waiting to enforce its NIL policy because it wanted clearer direction from its membership. So, hey, we're not going to do anything until you guys tell us to do it. And now schools are coming forward to say it. The athletic director for Ohio State, who is on one of these subcommittees for the NCAA, has basically said, look, we understand we might get sued for this, but it's time for us to draw the line in the sand and to start enforcing its policies. So between the conferences coming out of spring meetings saying they need to crack down on boosters, you have the NCAA now saying, hey, here's our policy. We're going to begin enforcing it both retroactively back to July 1st and moving forward. We are now setting the stage for the NCAA to potentially do something. The NCAA has come out and said, look, we're not going to punish the athlete, but we are going to go after the boosters. Maybe we disassociate them from the university, or maybe we go after the institution for lack of institutional control, which is kind of a death sentence, depending on the penalty. So we'll see. Um, the NCAA and its members have acknowledged that this may be um, bringing on a lawsuit and it's something that they understand may happen. So let's 
shift that direction now. So the NCAA apparently is going to begin enforcing its policies, trying to stop NIL to be used as a recruitment tool and to stop boosters from specifically engaging in recruiting activity. What happens if the NCAA is sued? So again, it goes back to antitrust law. And the Alston case stated that the NCAA is not exempt from antitrust law. So the major question in any antitrust case is, are consumers going to be harmed by the restraint of trade? So is the restraint of trade reasonable? Another way to ask it is, is the competition, See if I can put this a different way. Does the action that the NCAA is pursuing here benefit its consumers? And the consumers are college football fans. So the <clears throat> major question is going to be that the NCAA is going to have to address are consumers going to stop watching college sports if athletes are compensated by boosters or schools? I think they are going to have a very difficult time proving that. If we just look back to a couple a month ago, when we had the NCAA tournament, NIL was going on. Some of those athletes were getting paid. Maybe it hasn't been to the level that it's going to be, where you're going to have you know, recruits being paid to attend certain institutions as if that hasn't been going on for 50 years, but now it's out in the open. So, but, you know, to go back to the NCAA tournament from April, the men's TV's ratings were up 12%. So in the age of NIL, supposedly the death of college athletics as we know it, if you listen to some people, TV ratings were up 12%. Consumer demand has never been higher. Furthermore, if you look at football, I have a hard time believing that college football fans, if you are a fan of the Wisconsin Badgers or the Alabama Crimson Tide or the University of Georgia, who's coming off a massive national championship and they had eight guys on defense drafted in this last NFL draft, I would have a hard time finding a University of Georgia football fan who's going to stop watching the University of Georgia because they now have athletes who are getting paid. Like, I, I think that is a losing argument. And it's one that the NCAA must overcome in order to prevail on an antitrust basis. So, you know, Alston, while it was very narrow, it did set the stage for <clears throat> these future antitrust case, whether it's NIL, whether it's boosters, recruiting, etc. Maybe an athlete comes forward and says these rules are unfair. When an athlete loses eligibility, who knows how the NCAA is going to enforce this, but the question of are consumers going to stop watching college sports if athletes are compensated by boosters or schools, that's the main question. I find it very hard to believe the NCAA is going to be able to prove that. And, you know, they can sit there and say, well, you know, amateurism is a, is a core value of ours. That's fine. But at the end of the day, the cons it doesn't need to be a core value. People are still going to tune in. People are still going to buy tickets. In fact, it might even be higher than ever, the demand for high-level athletics. And, you know, these athletes will have an opportunity to make some money. They'll still get a great education, and they will either prepare, prepare, prepare themselves for a professional sporting career 
or you know do something else with their lives. But the <clears throat> the sense that the consumer is going to be harmed by athletes getting paid, I find very hard to believe. So knowing that, what can the NCAA do? Well, one, they can continue the same course, uh, get sued and probably lose. That seems to be the direction we're heading. <sighs> Maybe they can get Congress to step in. Um, Mark Emmert, the former president, or he might still be president, but he's, if he is president, he's a lame duck now. He did really nothing here other than beg Congress to pass, pass a federal law that got nowhere. Uh, I don't believe either the House or the Senate took it up. You're now seeing commissioners of these conferences go to Congress to ask for something similar. But what does that look like? Are they going to ask for an antitrust exemption similar to something like Major League Baseball had or has? Um, that would be one way to go about it. I don't know how successful that's going to be. We are in an election year. Um, plus, I don't know how popular that would be. I don't think, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think that people are agreeing with university presidents and athletic directors that this is the death of college sports as we know it and athletes should continue to work for free. Um, doesn't seem to be the popular opinion. I could be wrong. <clears throat> but by the way that the states scrambled over themselves to pass NIL laws, I feel like momentum is in the other direction. But that would be one option, that the NCAA could go to Congress, get antitrust exemption, pass some sort of federal law, and then that would allow them to restrain trade for college athletes. Again, I don't believe that's going to be successful, but that would be their other option. I don't see a way that we go back to the way things were a year ago. Um, the, the common analogy is that the toothpaste is out of the tube. That seems to be right. I mean, you have athletes making serious money in some cases. Um, I think it's time to adjust accordingly. And should there be some rules and restraints and guardrails around these things? Um, probably. What does that look like? I don't know. I think this might be the end of the end of the NCAA as we know it. I think you might see the Power Five conferences split off. Maybe they can come up with some sort of salary cap slash collective bargaining agreement so that they can control, you know, the amount of money flowing through this. How do we create competitive balance, et cetera? But, you know, for all the people freaking out about competitive balance, and again, I understand that we're very new into this. It's, it hasn't even been a year yet. But I'm finding a hard time believing that NIL is going to completely wipe out competitive balance. I don't know how some, some boosters, and you might say, well, the SEC has more money. They have more booster involvement. They're going to have better teams. Well, they already have better teams. I mean, the Big Ten has better teams than the Big East in football. Like, like I, I don't understand the argument there. <clears throat> I find it – I just – I feel like certain coaches are just upset because they no longer have a stranglehold on the top recruits in the nation because some schools are, are ponying up. I shouldn't say schools. Some collectives are ponying up to um, engage – in these athletes and to get them to the University of Tennessee, which has been a bottom tier SEC school, or, you know, can, can some of these other schools can, you know, whatever it might be. If you look at the recruiting class, it's still the, the big dogs on top. I saw Ohio state just signed another five-star quarterback today. 
Georgia is going to be defense U now. I mean, I find it hard to believe that with a couple of these recruits going to places that they earn money that we're going to ups, upset the competitive, the quote-unquote competitive balance in collegiate sports so much that we won't even be able to recognize it. I think the bigger problem for these institutions that they are finally realizing is we are now down the path to paying athletes. And they made a mistake by allowing NIL to happen even to begin with. And now, whether it's next year, two years, or five years from now, we're going to be at a spot where college athletes are paid to perform for their duties as an athlete, and these schools are going to be on the hook. And I think they're seeing that. They're seeing the momentum that this is going, and they're going to try and stop it through federal legislation or other means because they don't want to head down that path. But unfortunately for them, I think it's too late. So <clears throat> just in the last year and in the next year, there's going to be hundreds of millions of NIL, hundreds of millions of dollars of NIL deals done in the marketplace, whether that's through actual brands working with athletes for legitimate NIL deals or whether that's collectives you know, breaking the NCAA rules and actively recruiting athletes in high school and in the transfer portal. It's that's too much money to be thrown around to go backwards. The NCAA is either going to have to adjust and come up with some sort of framework to make this work, or they're going to have to go away and the power five schools and the bigger conferences are going to have to bend together to create some sort of other league, at least for football and men's basketball, to help guide this process, whether it's through some sort of collective bargaining agreement, salary cap arrangement like professional sports has, or just continue to let this go down its path. And yes, you're going to have winners and losers, but there's still only so much money to be thrown around, and I can't imagine some schools are going to be paying all of their star players tens of millions of dollars a year. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I don't understand how much money is truly out there or what some of these collectives are willing to do. But that's just my sense of it because, you know, football teams still have 110 guys on the roster. Not everyone's going to get the same amount. Not everyone's going to be able to make the same amount. So, again, maybe I'm naive, but that's just kind of my thoughts on that. So it's going to be interesting to see how it works. And the first time the NCAA tries to crack down on one of these boosters, these collectives are very well funded. I can almost guarantee an antitrust lawsuit, and then it's up to the courts. Unless Congress steps in, which, again, highly unlikely given the political climate. It's an election year. I don't see that happening this this year. Maybe it's in 2023 or 2024. Uh, but who knows what Congress will look like after the elections? Who knows if it's an issue they even want to address? And these schools and these institutions are going to have to adjust on the fly and come up with a better solution than we want it to go back to the old way because that's likely not going to happen. So I hope you all enjoyed kind of a historical view on antitrust in college athletics. It's a little academic and legally, if that's a word. Um, but it is kind of important. And as you hear, you know, people throw around the, the term, you know, antitrust basis and people are going to be sued. Just remember the main question that the NCAA is going to have to defend is that whatever action they take to restrain trade, to limit athletes' ability to make money, 
does the end consumer, which is the college sport watcher, the person who is watching college athletics, whether it's buying tickets or watching it on television, is the end consumer going to stop using their product because of the restraint on trade? So our consumer is going to stop watching college sports if athletes are compensated by boosters or schools. And if they're not, the NCAA is likely to lose on their antitrust case. So again, hope you enjoyed kind of the historical view, how we got to this point, where it might go in the future. Again, the NCAA can either enforce its rules and face a lawsuit. They can go to Congress for a federal law or they can change their current constitution slash structure slash rules um, to allow more of the activity that's going on to continue. And it doesn't seem like they want to do that last option. So what happens between options one and two? Only time will tell. It's a fascinating story to watch. It's not going anywhere anytime soon. I think it's going to dominate the news cycle for the summer. And we'll see where this goes. Um, there's a lot of good content in this space. Um, you know, Conduct Detrimental does a great podcast. Mitt Winter is a great follow on Twitter. Darren Heitner is a great follow on Twitter. So if you are interested in this name, image, and likeness debate, those would be the resources I would send you to. It's where I get a lot of my information on this space. If you are a soon-to-be college athlete, you need to be following this extremely carefully. Um, because while the NCAA has said they're not going to go after the athlete for now, in the future, your eligibility may be impacted by these rules. And you might say, yes, but they're going to lose on antitrust. And you would be right, but that might take four to five to six years to work itself through the court system, which doesn't help you as you're sitting on the sideline due to a lack of eligibility because you broke the rules. So just be careful out there. Um, it's probably better to be safe than sorry. You don't want to lose your college career because of an NIL collective. So just be aware of all of those different things. So again, thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the deep dive into name, image, and likeness. I enjoyed putting it together. And we will talk to you all this weekend. Later. Later.